You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Almighty God, we give you thanks for the gift of Lent and the time to focus our minds on the cross and the ultimate empty tomb. Open our minds and our hearts to the message of your word and make us instruments of the coming of your kingdom. And now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So thank you for coming back for session two of our six-week Lenten study of the lectionary for Lent. As Steve set out last week, the idea is if we read these lectionary readings during Lent and focus on the readings separate from the service, that might be easier for us to get the Lenten message for the week. And so this week is the being the second week in Lent we're going to focus on the readings for the second week in Lent. Last week, Steve gave us the readings from the Transfiguration, from which we saw that Jesus was revealed before the inner circle to be the, uh, the fulfillment of the Law and the Prophets in a, very, in a very real physical way. He was suddenly... He was like God, and he was there with Moses and Elijah. Now, this week, we're going to talk about Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant and the way the Abrahamic covenant points us forward to the crucifixion and the resurrection. So what I would like to do is first read from the Old Testament readings for the second week in Lent, which is from Genesis, and I'm going to read two of them uh, rather than just one. I'm going to read the one from year C first and then read the one from year B. The first one from year C is Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. The next reading is from chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, and this is the reading from year B. 
When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The word of the Lord. These two readings from Genesis are not two versions of the same story, but two different stories that happened years apart. The 15th chapter, I'm sorry, the 12th chapter of Genesis tells us that when God first told Abram, start walking and I'll show you where to go, he was 75 years old. And we just read the second reading in chapter 17 that he was 99 in that reading. Now, in between the first and the second reading, we have the story of the birth of Ishmael, which um, Genesis tells us was when Abram was 86 years old. And so the point, I think, that is important is that God's promise to Abram was good and true, but it was not immediate. That is, God's fulfillment took place in his time and not in perhaps Abram's time. Abram kept asking God, I have no heir. And God said, you will have an heir and you will be uh, the father of a multitude of nations. Abram was a man like all of us in this room with feet of clay. He had a great many moments when he strayed away from the path, but he was, despite his flaws, he was faithful in that he never gave up the belief. He held fast to the belief that God would fulfill this covenant. And God counted that belief, that faithfulness, as righteousness in Abram. Notice the change of his name in the second reading in chapter 17. The word, uh, the, the name Abram, translated from the Hebrew, means exalted father, which was a bit of a bad joke because he didn't have any offspring. Sarah was barren. He was, he was unable to have children. They had no offspring. He was lamenting to the Lord, I have no heir. His name is exalted father, but he had no heir. Abraham... As the, as the reading implies, if we were reading it in Hebrew, we would know it for sure. But Abraham is Hebrew for father of a multitude. And as God says, your name will now be Abraham because you will be the father of a multitude. Abraham must have thought, 
Okay, now I'm the father of a multitude. That's my new name, but there's still no multitude. There's still no heir. But Abram was faithful. This name change appears a lot in the Bible. It appears in modern times. The uh, Whenever a new pope is chosen for the Catholic Church, he adopts a new name. He doesn't use his old name. He has a new one. We know that has uh, plenty of biblical precedent. Uh, remember that Jacob spent all night wrestling with, with uh, Yahweh, and in the, in the morning he got a new name, Israel. Uh, Saul of Tarsus, a, uh, a persecutor of the early church, had a one-on-one -on -one encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ and became Paul the Apostle, whose, whose rest of his life was 180 degrees in the opposite direction. So these, these encounters with God, these significant encounters one-on-one, -on -one, tend to change people, and the name change is symbolic of that change. Notice this talk about covenant. In um, chapter 17, it repeats the word covenant over and over. And in verse 7, it reads, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. He goes from talking on and on about the covenant to the covenant being everlasting. It will never end. So what is a covenant? Well, biblically, it's not a contract. I don't want to get too lawyerly with you, but a contract is an agreement between two parties of relatively equal bargaining power who have the ability to walk away, who have the ability to say no, but who come to a meeting of the minds legally and a contract is formed. Now, a covenant is nothing like a contract. A covenant, rather, is, biblically speaking anyway, is where two parties of dramatically different bargaining power get together. The party who makes the covenant has all the power. The party who is the beneficiary of the covenant has no power. And in fact, in the case of God to Abraham, they're not even similar parties. God is the creator of all the universe, and Abram is only one of his created things. So this covenant comes from the one with all the power that ever existed and ever exists now to one who has none. And yet the covenant is made. So a covenant is not like a contractual agreement so much as like a gift. It's like um, a promise that will not be broken. It comes from one with all the power to one with no power and who has no merit. It, the one who receives the covenant doesn't deserve it. He doesn't earn it. And he isn't entitled to it. And there's a gospel message there, right? Doesn't that sort of point us to what the new covenant is? Just as the new covenant is unmerited grace, so was the old covenant this unmerited favor from God toward Abram. Now, where does this covenant lead, this Abrahamic covenant? Well, it, it leads directly to Christ. We all remember in chapter 22 of Genesis 
when Isaac has finally been born, Abram finally has the heir who is going to perpetuate his line and make him the father of the multitude. And God commands Abram, Abraham to take Isaac up onto the mountain and to sacrifice him. It must have seemed like the end of the world to Abraham, but Abraham obeyed. And remember, at the very moment that he's ready to slaughter his son, slaughter in literally um, in, the, in the language, that the angel intervenes and points to the ram instead. And so he sacrifices the ram. And God said, because you have done this thing, because you have been faithful and obedient, I have blessed you and blessed your heirs. And that is the moment when we as Christians understand that, that God is making a, uh, a sort of a parallel to Abraham. God will do for Abraham and for us what he did not require Abraham to do. That is, God will sacrifice his own son to fulfill this Abrahamic covenant. Abraham did not have to. But God will. That's a point that St. Paul makes in Romans chapter 8 rather vividly. We'll come back to that in a minute. But I want to go now, skip forward to a gospel reading. And um, this will be the gospel reading from year C. And it is from the gospel of Luke chapter 14. And verses 31, I'm sorry, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Um, We've done, this will be our second reading from year C. We did one from year B. You see, I'm trying really, really hard to stay out of year A and not tread on uh, anything that Mark Genelette has to say from the pulpit. Um, And I hope those of you who've heard him will, will conclude that I've been successful. So, Reading from year C, Luke 13, 31 through 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, that is, said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord. If you're like me, I'm somewhat literal. When I read this passage, I found myself wondering, what does this have to do with the Abrahamic covenant? That is to say, why have the... Um, the drafters, the revisers, the editors of the lectionary put this uh, gospel reading linked up in the same week with the Old Testament readings about Abraham and the covenant because it it was not obvious to me. I'm 
somewhat literal, as I said, and it, it, this was a little bit hidden. But if we work it out a little bit, I think we get to see some of the flavor. Number one, and this is a point having nothing to do with the uh, with the Abrahamic covenant, but it's not at all clear in this passage that Herod is the bad guy, because we know from numerous times in the Gospels that various Pharisees who were opponents of Jesus like to pretend to be his his uh, followers, his uh, his disciples, and ask these loaded questions that were intended to set up a situation where they could maybe catch him in some violation of the law. And we also know that Herod, when he actually did have a chance to get rid of Jesus, um, had no stomach for it. He sent him right back to Pilate, and that's also in Luke's Gospel. But we also know that there had been uh, Pharisees who were faithful followers of Jesus. Uh, Nicodemus was not the only one. And we also know that Herod had the uh, the fortitude to execute John the Baptist. So who knows? Maybe the Pharisees in this story were were speaking to him on the level. But it doesn't matter because Jesus says, I've got my own business. They're telling him, you've got to go away because otherwise you're going to be killed. And Jesus' point is, that's the point. That's why I'm here. This is my mission. He says in uh, verse 33, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem, which I read to mean Jesus is telling them back that this, you know, I'm supposed to die in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus knows that Herod's going to have nothing to do with it. He, he's, he's irrelevant to how Jesus' sacrifice is going to be worked out. But he's saying, uh, it's got to be in Jerusalem, so, so forget it. But he also says something that I think is prophetic. Well, he says two things that are prophetic. At the very end uh, of this passage, he says to Jerusalem, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, we know that happened, right? It happened when? In the triumphal entry, when uh, on Palm Sunday, when the crowds gathered and they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as he was riding into Jerusalem. So in a very literal sense, he is foretelling the Palm Sunday story. But also, in a more oblique reference, he says, and this is verse 32, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, and tomorrow, and the third day, I finish my course. Now, we believers, especially we believers during Lent, have no excuse for not seeing the message behind what these words represent. Literally, they are addressing what the warning from the Pharisees is. But in a theological sense, I perform cures, I cast out demons, I perform cures, and the third day, I'm done. Casting out demons, I submit, is exactly what he did on the cross. That is, he defeated Satan on the cross. Performing cures is also what he did on the cross, which is to provide the cure 
the answer for the disease of original sin. And then the third day, it is finished. The third day, the resurrection, showed that the culmination of his mission is to provide to everyone the gift of everlasting life. And that, I submit, as a very direct fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Notice what Jesus says, a prophet shall not perish outside Jerusalem. Again, literally, he's answering those Pharisees' warning about getting out of Jerusalem because it's dangerous here. Well, it's dangerous here because because it is, but I am here for a reason, and it has to do with perishing in Jerusalem, not outside of it. The sacrifice must be where? In Jerusalem. Think back to Matthew 22, where God told Abraham to take Isaac. Matthew, uh, Genesis 22 says that it was Mount Moriah where they went. The theological scholars tell us that Mount Moriah is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. That is, Jerusalem didn't exist then, but the city of Jerusalem was built around the ancient Mount Moriah. And in fact, Solomon's Temple was built on the very summit of Mount Moriah, and the, the altar of the temple was, according to tradition, on the very spot where Abraham, Abraham had built his, his altar to sacrifice his son Isaac, but was stopped by the angel. And so, here we have a, a, an image of the prophet Abraham pointing to the Messiah Christ and the sacrifice being in Jerusalem. The covenant was finished, the covenant was fulfilled, and the mission was accomplished. To tie it up for us, I'd like to turn to a fourth reading from the from the uh, epistle to the Romans. Let the formerly known Saul of Tarsus, before his encounter, tie all of these theological points together. Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. This is the reading from year B. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who were to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, 
I have made you the father of many nations. And here he's quoting from that second reading, uh, Genesis 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The word of the Lord. This passage is the is the explicit explanation. That's kind of redundant. It is the explanation in as stark terms as you could have of how the Abrahamic covenant readings in Genesis link to Jesus' words in Luke. That is, the law, which Paul refers to as, if it is the adherents of the law who were to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Abraham existed before the law. That is, before the Ten Commandments were delivered to the nation of Israel in the wilderness, Abram was called out of his ancestral home to this land that God would show him. And Abram's faith that he would be the father of the multitudes was before the Ten Commandments, before God gave the law. Abraham's faith preceded the law. And as Paul points out, if the only way for us to be heirs is to keep the law, then nobody can ever be an heir. Because as Christ made clear in the Sermon on the Mount, we can't keep it. That is another way of saying that the law is so perfect and we are so sinful that even when we are being good, we are not keeping the law. Even when we think we are not breaking the law, we are not living up to the standard of the law. So Paul's point is that the law defines what the transgression is. Once the definition is there, it's clear that we are incapable of keeping it. So to get back to the, to the contract idea, if, if God had offered Abraham a contract, keep my law and I will make you the father of nations, then nobody could ever have been the heir of Abraham's line because there's no way that Abraham or anybody else could ever meet that contractual requirement. 
But thanks be to God, it was a covenant instead. It was a free gift to Abraham and to all of us. And that's the second point that Paul makes, that this counted as righteousness was not only to Abraham, it's to all of us. It is to all of us, not only as the heirs to Abraham, but also as believers in the in the Christ as the Messiah who was the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Again, as Paul made it uh, crystal clear, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Just as John pointed out in the last verse of his prologue, John 1.18, he said, The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. That is, Moses delivered the, the law that establishes the standard. Jesus Christ gave us the truth that we cannot ever meet that standard, but Jesus Christ also gave us the grace that says, notwithstanding that we don't meet that standard, we are nevertheless offered sonship, daughtership. We are the children of God through Christ Jesus. The last point I want to leave us with is that Jesus' lament over Jerusalem, while literally speaking to Jerusalem, ought to be a lament over all of us. He, he says again, The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Now, Jerusalem, literally, he's referring to the nation of Israel and how often the nation of Israel had rejected the prophets who pointed the nation back to Yahweh. But we know also that Jerusalem is used often in the scripture as sort of a shorthand metaphor for God's kingdom on earth. And I submit that Jesus was also speaking to all of us, something that we ought to consider during Lent. Each of us, as a mini-Jerusalem during Lent, ought to consider all of the ways that we have figuratively stoned the prophets who have, sent, who have tried to point us back to God. So we who figuratively kill the prophets still are offered, thanks be to God, the covenant of the covenant to Abraham that was fulfilled in the cross and the empty tomb. And if we if we keep that in our in our sights during the period of Lent, if we remember these readings, and if we know that our faith ultimately will be imputed to us as righteousness, then we keep our eyes on the cross and the empty tomb, ultimately the point of the 40 days of discipline that we call Lent. And for that, we can all say, thanks, thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you all. 
Next week, Steve wants to talk to us about living water. And um, maybe we'll sing Peter, Paul, and Mary, but I suspect, I suspect not. So thank you again, and may you have a blessed week and a blessed rest of the Lenten season. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. 